Good morning. Somebody's got to tell Mr. Swim that some of us have a little more territory that needs to be covered than the average bear. So, uh, hey, I get that. I get that. Hey, we have a message to preach today. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 2. But let's start with this question to begin the day. Does anybody know what this is? It's a, it's, a, it's a lane divider. Yeah, you see these in the pool. Uh, somebody will uh, set up some rope, set up some lanes, and uh, the goal is that you have specific lanes to swim in. And of course, you know, when you watch uh, the Olympics, there are times that uh, lanes are helpful, right? They uh, help provide opportunities where people can have intense swims for intense styles. But they're, uh, they can be pretty restrictive, though, when you're trying to have a free swim, when you're trying to tell everybody that this is an open opportunity for, for everybody to get in the pool, Lanes can be divisive. And so to kind of help emulate this, for you to get a picture of what we're talking about, the restrictions that show up, sometimes with lane dividers for lap swims and whatnot, uh, we want you to watch this video of our, uh, our lifeguard who just pushes things too far. Watch this. Winning only. What? Afternoon, Mr. Garson. Good to see you, Frank. Yeah. So our point is, there are times that if you're trying to create an environment, if you're trying to create a community, a, a faith community, a church like ours, that there are times that while lanes and lap lanes are needed, they are specific and intentional. But as you're talking about the front doors, you're talking about meeting people where they are, you're talking about teaching people how to swim, uh, the, the laps, the lanes can be a little bit restrictive. And what we often find in church, that there are churches that love to create extra lanes and like to divide things up. And you may get this picture. Sometimes we divide by, by men or women, uh, by being white or not being white, the elderly or 18 years or younger, or if you're a right-handed, red-headed, uh, blue is your favorite color, born in February kind of person, you want a lane for you, or you, you, you get where I'm going with this? Churches can sometimes make their relationship, Christians can sometimes make their relationships all about trying to be with people who think like us, act like us, talk like us, walk like us, and we can become the kind of people that exclude, that isolate and that's what's happening in the conversation that we're having out of the story, out of Galatians, that this freedom that they're being invited to, open for everyone, that early Christians are beginning to create all these lines and lanes, separations and segregations, and they're destroying the gospel. We need to be reminded specifically that we are created for freedom, not for restraint. We're created for freedom, not for restraint. And we say that because when you look at the relationship we have with Christ, it's important for us to understand that in our experience, the freedom of being, we're becoming more and more who Christ wants, the people who God has created us to be. 
And so when you look at, uh, at what we looked at last week in Galatians chapter 1, you begin to look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 1 sets the context of where we're going, but Galatians chapter 2 begins to be the confrontation. I like this verse, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 and 6 says this. True love cares enough to confront. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. There are times that there needs to be intense conversation, and so this, this message, as you read through it, as you realize what's happening in this dynamic, is that Paul is calling the church out. That the front door of the church has become exclusive instead of inclusive. That well-intending, long-standing, God-fearing people have begun to put stipulations, almost regulations, on the expectations of how people should engage. We should remember that the gospel, this good news of Jesus, should be, be the kind of thing that brings freedom, because gospel freedom empowers unity. We talk about this phrase, the gospel, we're talking about Jesus being fully God and fully man, that he lived a pure and blameless life, that his death, his burial, his resurrection became the gateway of invitation for all of us to experience the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. We call this the gospel. We also call it the good news. And it's what the early church was built on. It's what our church is built on. That Jesus alone is our means of salvation. But unfortunately, there begins to be this kind of distortion, this destruction that begins to happen. So last week we tried to qualify this a bit, tried to define it a little bit to understand about these oppositions to the gospel. And we remind ourselves today that to, to distort the gospel is to destroy the gospel. That when you make it anything other than Jesus, you begin to destroy its very potency. Which also reminds us that the, uh, the passion of the gospel demands we protect the gospel. You need to understand that if it comes to a point, at any point in our church's history, that if it becomes anything other than Jesus, it will be a fight. We have to hold on to that being our banner, that the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection is the foundation by which we reach, include, grow, shape, and live our lives back to him. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 3. What's interesting about this passage is that the Apostle Paul is trying to leverage in this idea that Gentiles, people who are not born of Jewish faith, are now coming to Christ and should be openly included. The challenge is some of the traditions, regulations, and ritual of those who grew up Jewish coming to faith are now mandating that these Christ followers become Jewish before they become Christian. And so Paul gives the best example he can. He brings a friend, someone who's been transformed by this gospel. Here's what it says, starting in verse 3. Yet not even Titus, this is the young man that he's bringing, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves, not literally, but figuratively. We did not gain anything from them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
As those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to our message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised or to the, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been, uh, had been to the circumcised or to the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter, an apostle uh, to the circumcised, was also at work in me, an apostle to the Gentiles. James and Cephas, Cephas is another name uh, for, that Peter went by, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. Paul is trying to lay out an understanding here of the idea that the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. And so in this conversation, he brings in uh, kind of a case study. We'll, we'll see what really matters in the early church. And so he brings a young man who has grown up pagan, has no relationship with God, doesn't understand the ways of Christianity, but has come to faith, has surrendered his life to Christ, and is now living out a life that's being transformed by Jesus, by the empowerment of his spirit. And so as this man is growing in his faith, Paul decides, let's, let's include him, let's bring him along, let's introduce him to some other people, and let's let the church, those who grew up from a, a Jewish tradition coming to faith in Christianity, those not growing up Jewish, growing up in Christian faith, and let them see how God is reaching all people. We talked about this crisis last week that unfortunately, those who had been raised Jewish as we began to take the hope to the world, they began to qualify that coming to Christ also made first and foremost that you need to become Jewish. And the mark that often defined Jewish men compared to Gentile men was the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that was sealed in circumcision. And as we talked about that, we said, imagine being a young pagan man that's come to church with his wife, and as they're uh, thinking about joining the church, a religious leader well-intended goes back to his faith tradition and says, well, before you can begin to understand who Jesus is, you must be circumcised. I imagine many men were not excited about that church. I imagine many men were not saying, hey, sign me up, let's make this happen. And Paul was saying, you know, we have made a mountain out of a molehill. We've made a, a minor something major. We're missing the point. The cross of Jesus Christ is the new beginning. And we should begin there. And so they find themselves in this conflict where tradition is now outweighing the truth of Jesus. Now, tradition isn't always wrong. It's not always bad. But tradition is bad as soon as it becomes divisive, as soon as we make other things priority things over Jesus. And that's what's happening in this early church. They are making old ways, old ceremonies, old pieces of their faith become the priority in front of Jesus. Some of them were saying, if you want to be Christian, you must first be Jewish. And that's, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of new life. And so there becomes, this there becomes this understanding that the only outcome that shows up when tradition takes a priority over the truth of the gospel is disunity. 
So look what goes on as they begin to to finish through this passage. The case study of Titus begins to create conflict. Two faith leaders begin to step out. One goes direction of the Jews. One goes the direction of the Gentiles. They're both commissioned and empowered by God. But look what happens when the faith community begins to come back together in verse 11. When Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him. This is Paul talking. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men he came from he came from James, excuse me. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back to separate himself from Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, this this should be kind of shocking because Barnabas, the name Barnabas is a man who's known as being the son of encouragement. Everybody likes Barney, right? He's encouraging. He lifts people up. People love to hang out with Barnabas. But now even Barnabas is starting to fight for this tradition. And Paul says this, hey, understand this. I have gone to a group of people who have never heard the gospel before, and God is changing their lives. By droves, God is inviting people into his kingdom, and we are seeing life change in major ways. Grace works. Truth works. And people are being transformed. But he sees Peter, and Peter at one time would hang out with Gentiles. He would, he would sit and eat with them. He would hang out and, and, and invite them into his life. But the challenge is this. Peter then shows up, and he sees long-standing church people. That should be a, a sign that let's open the doors even wider. Let's meet people where they are. But those who are holding up tradition, those who are holding up regulations, those who are throwing out lanes to create lane dividers of of the, the young, the somewhat young, the mature, trying to define things in different ways, they had begun to choke the very gospel. And Paul calls Peter out. He says, this isn't right. This is hypocritical of us. We can't say that the gospel is for everyone, but then exclude some. When it comes to the gospel, the good news It has to be for everyone. It has to be for everyone. It can't be just for some. It can't be just for part. It can't be for the ones that, well, they do this, but they don't do that. The gospel has to have the power to inform and impact everyone, or it has no potency at all. I remember having a conversation with a gal one time who was, she was serving at a, a local non-for-profit, a, a group of people that uh, uh, were financially oppressed, probably caught in some habitual sin, maybe multi-generations of, of uh, sickness and oppression in different ways. And she was telling me how much she enjoyed serving those who were disadvantaged. She felt like she was making real life change. She felt like she was impacting people. She felt like she was changing her community. But then as she began to describe her work, she began to talk about the expectations she had on everyone and the way she wanted to kind of live those rules out. And so I asked her how things were going, and she said, well, let me give you an example. She goes, can you believe this? I had somebody ask me for prayer. They wanted me to pray for them. And I said, well, what did you do? She said, well, I told them no. Not until they get their act together and straighten up their life would I pray for them. Is that absurd to you? Is that absurd to you? Yeah. 
It is. Shame on us. Shame on us when we turn a free swim of Jesus into a lap swim of qualifications. And we can do this all the time in our churches with our friends that we only reach out to the deep. We only reach out to the mature. We, we spend most of our time, we, we ignore people who maybe don't understand what we understand. They don't learn what we learn. They don't agree with us. And so what we do is we create safer lanes of segregation that isolate us while the world itself calls out for a church, for a savior that will meet them where they are and lead them into who they can be. There are three obstacles that show up in the church of Galatia. And they can show up in our church if we're not careful. The first obstacle is this, it's legalism. Legalism is right behavior with wrong belief. This is what's happening in the church of Galatia. The the long-standing people of faith, they understand that they are obeying Christ, but now they're making a prerequisite imposed on everyone else. That's legalism. We call out for people to to fix their life. People who want to surrender to Christ or maybe want to get baptized, we, we encourage them to go fix themselves, to clean themselves up. Get yourself together before you're ready to surrender to Jesus. What's the point of Jesus if we fix our life on our own? What's the point of Jesus if we don't need transformed? You know, one of the things that can ruin a swimming experience pretty quickly is legalism. Or in the pool metaphor, it's too much chlorine. You ever swam in a pool with too much chlorine? Your skin begins to itch, begins to dry out. Your shorts fade. Everything begins to fade. It loses its color. It loses its life because chlorine is intended to kill anything, right? And legalism in the church It's like swimming in a pool with too much chlorine. It kills everything. The second obstacle that shows up, though, is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is just as dangerous than legalism, but it's different. It's the wrong behavior, but the right belief. Meaning you know what you should do. We know how we should live our lives as Christ followers, but we choose to rebel anyway. It's the parent who says... Do as I say, not as I do, right? It's the other obstacle in the pool that can ruin your swim experience. Not only does too much chlorine ruin your swimming experience, but let's say it's the awkward dad that keeps telling his kids to make sure they go into the bathing area, into the bathroom to take care of their business, but he never leaves the pool. You know what I'm saying? Too much chlorine and too much Urine can ruin your swimming experience. You feeling that? You feeling that? Yeah. Both destroy the church. And if we're transparent when it comes to our faith, we tend to drift to one or the other. We either tend to be a Christ follower that trusts God's grace so much that we live like hell and we hope for heaven. Or we live for a legalistic world. We like the truth of God's word. And we fight like hell for heaven. Some of us, though, we drift to the middle on something different. And it's equally an obstacle. It doesn't seem so strong or starch, but it is. And it's just religion. Where you have right belief, 
and right behavior. But you have no relationship with a lifeguard. You have no understanding of the regulations. And it can, can, it can consume freedom as well because we're just running through tasks. We're just doing what we know, but we have no real life-changing transformation in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have morality, but we don't have trait transformation. See, when we're talking about this faith and we're talking about freedom, what we're really inviting people to is that freedom equals trust and obedience. To live out who God has created us to be, to, be, to live out the design that he's made for us, we learn how to trust God fully and obey God fully. And some of you are saying, well, what do you mean by that? When we talk about trust, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior, your lifeguard, you don't worry about drowning. You trust that the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is in fact the only thing that provides for your relationship back to God. You trust that. But what about obedience? Some of you are going, now. it seems like a bait and switch or it seems like you're trying to, trying to bring this back around the back door. Are we, are we starting to go towards, listen to this for a second. When we talk about freedom, we need to understand that there are guidelines to the world that we're a part of. That we are designed for certain things. The design of a fish is intended to be in water. It's not intended to live on land. We don't force fish onto land to try and make their, their way through life. We understand how they're designed, how they're created, how they best respond to how God's created them. I mean, there are, there are rules and regulations. A good lifeguard will look out for you, but good guidelines will help you have the best swimming experience as possible. And so you may love going to the pool and diving into the deep end, but if the pool is only three feet deep, it's not healthy for you to dive in. It's dangerous. As weeks go on, we're going to unpack more and more what this life with Christ can look like, how this freedom can be found for all, what it's like to understand that our security, everything about our faith and salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. And we will confront some, some of the lanes that get thrown out in our world that begin to isolate us and separate us and segregate us. But listen to the words of Jesus. As Jesus invites people into relationship with him in the book of Matthew chapter 11, here's what Jesus' invitation says to the world around them. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Following Jesus is not just a bunch of tired cliche or phrases that can be thrown around. If you're a person today that's wrestled with putting your toe in the water, but maybe you grew up in a swimming experience where people made fun of you because you didn't, you didn't really know how to swim. People splashed wa water on you all the time and, and bullied you and intimidated and you. You just gave up on swimming. Maybe you, maybe you wanted to swim at one time and you started to get the experience of it, but you, you couldn't swim with some of the others. And so what happened is you found good swimmers going off to do their own thing and you were left to try and figure out your swimming experience on your own. As Christ followers, we want to not only invite people to put their toe into the water, we want people to engage in that water and we want people to become the best swimmers they can. But the idea of separation, of that the mature go here, 
the young go here, is a misconception of the church. It is by generation after generation that we engage and bring people along. And those of us who have been in the faith longer than others should be surrounded on a regular basis by those who have never learned how to swim. We're the best teachers. We're the best ones to help them understand what swimming is like. But be careful. Don't make the traditions or the practices the priority over the relationship. Don't miss it. As a church, as a leadership, we wrestle with this kind of challenge on on a regular basis. How do we live this out? What do we do? What do we hold on to? And here's a phrase that we have. We say this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. Some of the early church fathers began to uh, uh, live that out. I mean, in the last three, four hundred years, that phrase comes to fruition as the church is maturing and developing. They're finding as philosophy and theology is maturing and growing that people are just, they're setting up more swim lanes all over the world and it's beginning to become more distinctive instead of more inclusive. And there was a rallying point that we've got to get back. We've got to live out what truly matters. So here's what that means for us. What's essential for us as a church? Specifically, as we're talking about this book of Galatians and we're talking about living out our faith. What is essential to us is that Jesus, fully God, fully man, lived a pure and blameless life. It was his sacrifice, his death, his burial, and his resurrection That is the bridge by which we now have a relationship back with God. Not our works, not our talent, not our ability, not the name on the back of our jersey, not the amount of money in our wallet, not our political affiliation. It is by the work of Jesus alone. His death, his burial, his resurrection is the essential piece for salvation for all the world. And it is for everyone. Or it's for no one. Let's move to a time of response, shall we? We live in a difficult world. We live in a world that the loudest people are usually right, right? You can watch the news. You can attend a local high school. You can hang out at a coffee shop. And you find that our world is more polarized than ever. And in this world, we understand that uh, might makes right. Money creates movement. We understand that influence and, and power and volume are sometimes the very agents by which truth whatever that may be in our world, is declared. If you're a parent right now, you know how difficult it is to look at your sons or your daughters and to understand that we live in a world that uh, if you disagree, you hate. Tolerance is for those who agree, but if you don't match what we agree with, then you must not be tolerant. Sometimes in our Christian mindset, I think we 
we, we, we man up, don't we? We rise up. We assume that that banner of truth that we need to throw into the air needs to be louder and stronger and bolder and more obvious. But then I think about Jesus. Think about the accusations that were thrown at him. I think about his accusations as he stood before Pilate. Think about all the things that got said against Jesus, even him nailed on the cross. And where do you find Jesus' strength? In his silence. And where do you find Jesus' might? In his compassion. Where do you find the revolution that began to change history? In a life of love. Friends, I weep sometimes as I watch the division in our world because sometimes it's Christ followers behaving badly. We're found screaming. We're found pointing fingers. We're found throwing out lanes for lap swims and segregating ourselves as light. It's called to step into darkness. A couple principles maybe we have to begin to embody. The first is this. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we can't have peace. I think sometimes we find ourselves in disagreement with each other and we like the fight more than we like the forgiveness. And I'm afraid that in some ways as Christ followers, we draw a line too quickly, too drastically, too harsh, And people who are very far from God, if we got to know them, we would see a reflection in their past that's very similar to the reflection of our past. And we would learn how to meet people where they are and invite them into the pool. Accepting people where they are doesn't mandate that we affirm how people live. We have to understand that. But the other thing is this. If we disagree with people around us, can we still agree to love graciously? To live authentically? And to trust that it's Jesus who changes us all? Church, I love you. I do. But the symptoms that happen in Galatia are symptoms that even happen in our church. Maybe somebody worships different than us. Maybe somebody preaches different than us. Maybe somebody doesn't have quite the, the depth of faith that you have. 
and we start criticizing ourselves when every one of us should be holding hands together being thankful for the graciousness of God that we all are counted as found so if you've said Jesus is your Savior and Lord where are the lines that you have drawn where's the hatred that's been promoted accidentally or incidentally where are the areas of our own hearts that we should repent first because it does no good for the church to stand and point at every difference whether it be political whether it be moral whether it does no good but a church that could love a church that can be compassionate a church that can be silent because we're confident in the power of Christ alone that might that might be listening to in the world that we're a part of today I want to encourage you to continue to swim with us in this journey we have uh, bookmarks that are going to be on your way out today. If you didn't get one last week, we've been doing a devotional every day. And then at 12 o'clock, we've actually gone on Facebook Live and we've shared some thoughts from, from our staff. You can pick up one today. You can jump into week two. If you're not in a group currently right now, I want to encourage you to join midweek, our mid-sized group, excuse me, our mid-sized group that's meeting here on Wednesday nights. The information's in your program. But we need to respond today that we would become the peacemakers once again. That we would be the ones that would fight for the doors of this church to be kicked wide open. That when certain people begin to show up, people begin to question our reputation the way they question Jesus' reputation. The best ministry is messy ministry. When it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, and it pushes us to a place that only by the faith of Jesus can we live. That's who God's calling us to be. So why don't we go ahead and stand. In just a moment, we're going to respond. Some of us are going to go to the benches to pray. Some of us are going to go to the tables to be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to eat the bread and drink the juice. Some of us are going to go to the boxes to to put their connection card in there. Maybe there's a decision of faith. Maybe uh, it's an opportunity to surrender back to Christ. Maybe it's a time to surrender your offerings, your tithes back to God. But whatever it is, may we Like Peter and Paul, may we confront the legalism and the hypocrisy and the religion that we fight for to surrender to a faith that is free, fully trusting Christ, and fully obedient to him and him alone. Let's sing.